and Sam stops practice and he kicks over, you know, he kicks over a bike and he's yelling and he's like, you know, Keith, if I see him in the weight room with you one more time, like you're fired. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Basketball Strong Podcast. I'm Tim DeFrancesco, former LA Lakers strength and conditioning coach and doctor of physical therapy, and I'm here with my co-host, Emmy-nominated writer and author, Phil White. This podcast is not just for basketball junkies. It's for anyone who loves to hear the human stories behind great people while learning the science behind preparing your body for the court and high performance. Today's guest is Keith D'Amelio. Keith spent five seasons on the performance staff with the Boston Celtics and then became the youngest head strength and conditioning coach in the NBA with the Toronto Raptors. He's now the director of performance with Nike. We had a great conversation talking about everything from sports science to his favorite Kobe story where he was on the other end of Kobe's 81 points against the Raptors. Let's get into the conversation. Keith, talk to us a little bit about where you got kind of initiated into the NBA world. And I think through the Celtics was the initial access to the, the NBA world for you and, and what the NBA was like then. And take us into your chapters after that a little bit. Yeah. So it, it's really an interesting story um, in, in somewhat by design, somewhat just by luck. Um, and, and the way that I got into the NBA was, uh, I did my undergrad at Arizona state and we had a, one of my instructors for this course was basically the assignment was to interview someone whose job you would want. Always been an athlete. You know, at that point I have kind of honed in that I wanted to work in, in sports, you know, didn't know where, didn't know how, uh, but I've reached out to Aaron Nelson. Uh, who's with the Suns. It was Aaron's first year as the head athletic trainer with the Suns. He'd taken over for Joe Prosky, who was there for like I don't know, 30 years or whatever. Um, and, and so just did a conversation with Aaron. And, you know, he's lucky enough, or I was fortunate enough that he answered my phone call and, and sat there and had me interview him and grill him and had a really good conversation with him. And, and kind of at the end of it, I just said, hey, do you guys do an internship? And he said, you know what? We haven't ever in the past, but that is something I want to do now, like moving forward. He said, so look, go home. You know, I was from, I'm from Boston, right? And he said, get as much basketball experience as you can. And when you come back, you know, for my senior year, he's like, good. Like you're at the top of the list. Like you'll be our intern. So I was pumped. Fast forward, go back home uh, to Boston, leave a voicemail on the, uh, for Ed, Ed Lassert, who was a head athletic trainer with Celtics, longtime head athletic trainer. Uh, and just kind of told my story, said, Hey, if there's anything I can do this summer, like, let me know. That was at a time when the summer league, as it was known then was hosted at UMass Boston, right? That was wow. prior to, and then it was the 2004 democratic convention that kind of kicked everybody out of the, the fleet center as it was known then. Um, and, and then that's when it actually moved to Vegas. Like that was the, the, the reason why it moved to Vegas. So Ed returned my phone call again. And he said, actually, yeah, we have a summer league. So I need all hands on deck. Volunteered for the summer, went back out to Phoenix, called Aaron, said, Hey, I'm back. Let's go. He said, Oh, sorry. We gave it to somebody else. He gave it to, to Mike Elliott, Timmy, who, you know, obviously, right? Like cowboy. So sure. Mike was a classmate of mine, good friend. Um, but, but I was shit out of luck with, with the internship I thought I was going to have with the Suns. The Celtics found out and they said, look, as soon as you graduate, you got a job here. So uh, just kind of worked my, worked my tail off for him that summer. Luckily made a good impression. And when I finished up school, went right back home to Boston and worked for the hometown team for about five seasons. So it was awesome. Wow. So those five seasons um, during that stage of the NBA and now what we see and in, in the things that you're immersed in now from specifically like a sports science athlete monitoring standpoint, can you talk about the differences then versus now? Uh, night and day doesn't, I, I don't <laughs> describes it like a, a, as, as drastic as it needs to be. Um, but, but really it is just, I think it's all aspects right? Like back then, especially with the Celtics, right? But then, then we can talk about my time with the, the Raptors too after that. Yes. But, but back then, I mean, it was bare bones. It was, you know, you still had some teams that they didn't even have a strength coach. They didn't, right. you know, it, was, it was the lack of, of structure and, and support I'll say that, that most of these athletes got was, was pretty minimal. 
even though it was still like, there was still big money. I mean, max contracts back then, you had, you know, Antoine Walker with us in Boston, making 17 a year. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the the eighties where guys are making a right. hundred thousand. Um, but, but, you know, as you fast forward to now, now it is like this, you know, in some cases, sometimes I think it's more for show than anything, but it's like a little bit of an arms race. You also have a lot of, certainly the star players, but, but even as you go down the list, players have their individual support staff around them. And, and, and that's really probably one of the biggest thing, in addition to, you know, obviously technology uses and, and the use of data for player management, um, but that's probably the biggest thing too. I didn't have to really deal with that a little bit in Toronto, but, but not much. Um, but now I think that's the norm. And I think sometimes it's not, you know, these teams don't have as much of an influence as maybe they should uh, with, with each athlete in terms of their overall care because of the, you know, the, the, the support structure that these athletes have in place, irrespective of the team. Yeah, TD, what did you see at the Lakers, obviously going from the jam to, to the Lakers um, at that particular time, just kind of dovetailing off of what Keith's sharing there? Well, I think it, what Keith, you said was it becomes at times a arms race, uh, keeping up with the Joneses type of situation. And then the my my experience was one where I was – there as the head strength and conditioning coach with the Lakers, but then, oh, by the way, you need to be able to be in charge of nutrition. We don't have a person for that. And then why don't you just be the sports scientist too? Because uh, everybody's doing that now and, and we're probably not going to go hire somebody from Man U or something like that. So you could do that stuff. How hard could it be? And um, I think that was sort of at the boom stage of that where say 2011-ish, 8 to 11, where you started to really have different technologies be introduced and and be, maybe they had been for five years in, in sports like European soccer or things like that, but they were getting into the NBA and, and then it was getting into hands of people that maybe weren't always, like myself, versed in the space of athlete monitoring or technology and, and how to apply the right technologies in the right ways, or even evaluate technologies to see if they're valid, reliable, and telling us even the things that we think they are. And so for me, it was definitely a lot of frustration because it wasn't what I was in my mind there for, but it also wasn't, it, it wasn't something that I could ever, it was like catching water because it was all so new. And one year after investing in a new piece, you would find out we've got more information on it and, and, or it's not doing what we said it was, or it is, but it's a year away from actually being able to do that, that kind of thing. And so that piece was definitely frustrating, but those were, you know, when you first came in, Keith, in those times, like there wasn't even uh, or I guess the question I have is, was there even really a discussion of athlete monitoring? Was that even a term? It, it, it wasn't. Um, it's certainly not in my time in Boston. As, yeah. As, yeah. As, I, as I took over in Toronto as the head train coach, it, it was interesting because it, it still wasn't. But, and this certainly isn't to make myself seem like I'm some like trail trailblazer, but like we were doing things at that time, 2005, six, um, that no one in the league was doing. And, and really in my mind was like the precursor to some of this. Yeah. We had athletes, we wore heart rate monitors every practice during practice. So we were getting And again, that predated to, to your comment there, Timmy, like yet catapult didn't it, like that stuff wasn't out yet. So I didn't right. have a way to use that. So, so I was using the next best or at least what was available from, you know, uh, first beat heart rate monitors. And, and then I was also like capturing athletes sleep. Um, you know, just something in my mind, not that like everybody knows, like, Hey, sleep's important. I think my thought process at the time certainly was not anywhere near like refined. Um, or like, I would love to pretend like I was like, Oh yeah, it's cause I'm doing this. Like, I didn't know what, what I was doing, but, but I knew like having a better conversation with my athletes was needed. And to do that, I probably should know what I'm actually like, what these athletes, what their sleep habits are, what were, you know, and, and, and that was really the, the reason why I wanted to capture some data just so I could have better, more informed conversations with, with the athletes, you know, on the practice monitoring standpoint, like, you know, capturing, capturing the heart rate data. Did it have much of an influence on what we did? No, probably not. I, I think for me, I also, um, and I do tell the league office this now because 
I, I don't think they can retroactively find me, but we were, we were wearing it in games. Like I would, I would pick, you know, periodic, uh, a few games each month and I would have our major minute guys wear, wear heart rate monitor. In no game, way. Which, which was, was the, the best story about it. So one, because I also wanted to see, and, and this did allow me to have a better conversation with the coaching staff of like, Hey, like this is what happens in a game. We are not representing that in practice, right? Do we want to change? Do we want to, wow. you know, we're doing in, Look, did they listen all the time? No, frankly, they didn't listen 99% of the time. But, but I did, we did make a couple of, of influences. But the, the best part about the game is, you know, I went to great lengths to make sure it went smooth. Like I taped the straps. They had to wear a compression shirt, even if like that wasn't part of it, but they had to. And, and the players were great with it. They like could have cared less because like, they understood why I was doing it, right? And, which I think a, a lot of times actually is where this stuff falls short. Yeah. The staffs do not actually have that, you know, that conversation and, and, and bring the athletes along for the, for the ride. But, but I'm up in my office one day after a game and, you know, I usually, well, the night before I usually go around after the game and I collect the, the belts from each athlete. And I got to Jamario moon who was on the team at the time. And I was like, Hey, you know, Jay, where's your belt? And he was like, Oh, I don't know, man. I like out by the bench. And I was like, huh, well, that's interesting. So I walk out by the bench I'm looking, I don't see anything. A uh, security uh, guard kind of sees me. He's at the sort of the, the, the lower bowl and he's like, hey, Keith, comes running down and he hands it to me. Again, that probably should have thought something, but I didn't. Uh, cool, thanks. <laughs> the next morning, um, I'm, up, I'm up on the practice court, if you remember, at that time with the Air Canada Center, it's up on the third floor. Yeah, you had to go take an elevator up there. Yeah, and, and the head coach, Sam Mitchell, at the time, you know, calls my office phone. He's like, Keith, you know, get down here right now. Use maybe some more colorful language. Like, right, cool. <laughs> so I go down, and, and the coaches are having a meeting in the coach's office, and they've got the game up on the 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 big the big screen. And he's like, you know, what the hell is this? And boom, hits play. It's game action. Jamario is on the far side of the court. He's guarding the ball. His heart rate, like monitor, falls off, hits the floor. No, <laughs> he picks it up. Now, mind you, he's on ball. He picks it up. He throws it across the court over the bench and then goes back to guarding the ball. And the guy like with the ball just kind of like looks at him like, like doesn't, <laughs> no one said anything. And, and it would Sam, you know, Sam then goes, if I ever see a heart rate monitor on these guys in a game again, like, it, you know, it's your ass. Um, so I dodged oh. the bullet there, but, but yeah, we were doing things back then that I think just to, you know, again, it was, it was more selfish in my mind, you know, for me just to yeah. understand what was happening better. Um, and, and, and now it's definitely, you know, I think in some cases like the pendulum has swung way too far, although I do start to see it coming back a little bit, um, you know, where maybe the last couple of years, these staffs have just ballooned and this, the amount of information they're collecting is just, I think it's more for like them and their ego as, as opposed to actually helping the players. Um, but, but I do see it maybe starting to scale back a little bit, but, but that's where the biggest, um, the biggest difference I've seen from my time to now, for sure. Wow. That's uh, what, a, what a story. It's, <laughs> uh, it's like the Donnie Brasco of the NBA. Um, but uh, can you talk a little bit about why that was one of the first things that you felt like, hey, if we get this monitored, I mean, touch on what you brought up earlier of it would give us information of game versus practice intensities and things like that or responses. But then what are the other things that could be sort of deciphered from gathering heart rate information in practice or game? Yeah. For, for me, it was also like, Hey, is, is what I'm doing training wise representative mm. for, for what the demands that they're going to face, right? Which same thing game, but like, also like, how should I redesign or rethink the way that I'm conditioning these athletes and training these athletes for, for what's going to be asked of them. Right. Like we shifted around and, and then also what's the goal of practice. Right. So if, if it is like sort of, you know, actually to develop fitness, you know, some coaches like, Oh no, we just need to get out and run and okay, cool. Well, then maybe we need to restructure the way we do drills because of how you want that, that training response to be. Um, but for me, it was, it was more or less like, how am I programming for these athletes, you know, more from obviously an energy system. Um, but to, to actually meet the demands they're going to be faced like that, that's how I thought okay. that was, that, that was really the reason why then it just sort of ballooned into like, well, man, I'm capturing all this data. I probably captured a year's worth. And then the next year I was like, 
wait a second, I should probably find out what happens in a game. And then I added it in game and, and, and did, and, you know, and went from there. Talk to us a little bit about the, the sleep monitoring you mentioned, because I know, um, you know, during the, the bubble, the aura ring started to mm-hmm. come in and uh, a few guys like Kyle Coos and we were like, I don't want to be low jack, man. Like there was some skepticism around it, um, but it, you know, it happened nonetheless. And so obviously there was a bit of a quantum leap there, but we're talking yep. about quite a span of years. So what, what were you doing in terms of techniques around sleep? And again, were you just hoping to ask better questions or were you hoping to, to drive outcomes in some way? I was yeah both probably I, I was I was trying to um, you know figure out like what message does this athlete like is most impactful for this athlete right if it's like hey again that that's the thing with sleep and sleep education is it's pretty fundamental like and there isn't any like magic but it's like to get to bed at a good time like try try and be consistent with that like yes there's some 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 maybe very specific things if, if there's some sleep issues, um, like very specific sleep issues, but, but for the most part, just general quality, like information, like, uh, like approaches. Right. And, and for me, it was like, all right, but which one works best for this athlete? Cause I've got some athletes that, you know, there, there's an athlete, I have literally three years every night of his sleep and he's a robot. He's, he's arguably the, the most professional athlete you've ever worked with. Like if you think about that term professional, Telling him to have a regular like sleep and wake time is irrelevant because he does. So it's like, okay, what, what actually sleep advice, if, if you call that, or sleep information is meaningful for him. And, and then that's kind of how I looked at it with, with the team there. The other part was getting them to recognize it. So it, it, was, it was, you know, interesting because I also have guys wear like a heart rate monitor on an off day 24 hour, for 24 hours. Mm. So then they could come back in and I could like, Hey man, that was supposed to be an off day. Like, just look at what happened here. And, you know, just so they could start to understand like, huh, I guess I didn't just kind of take it easy. Like I should have. Um, and, 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 and there was the same thing with sleep of like, you know, not to say like, Oh, I slept great or I feel like I slept great, but this is telling me I slept like shit. It was more like, you know, look at the impact of certain decisions you made prior to sleep and how that affected you. Right. Like, I mean, personally, like two glasses of wine, I'm cool. I have any more than that. Like there is a very specific response in like my information. Right. right? Um, and, And I think, you know, without that, I think sometimes also too, especially with sleep, people use it for maybe, I don't want to say something it's not, but, but like capturing, this is also with my athlete that I have like three years with. I, at, at some point I stopped, like we both kind of looked at each other one day and we're like, are we really doing anything with this? Or are we just collecting it for the sake of collecting it? Right. And, and, and we stopped um, because it really wasn't driving any decisions or, or wasn't, nothing was changing because he was so dialed in. I think it's great, especially when you're just learning an athlete to use it for you know, two weeks, maybe a month to really understand someone's sleep hygiene and their habits so that again, then you can better direct that information education that they need for their situation and, and their, you know, issues, let's call it. Um, but like the aura, yeah, that goes back to, I think my other, you know, the, the comment I made there to Tim before is that's where I think a lot of the implementation of this technology and data fall short is I'm sure Kyle would be fine if someone sat down and said, Hey, here's what we're collecting. Here's why we're going to collect it. And then actually did what they said they were going to do. Right. It's it, it, because I think, you know, I would be the exact same way if I'm a, you know, an athlete, shoot, I'm the same way right now. Just me, regardless of an athlete, if someone's going to ask me a question or ask me to do something, okay, you better one, be able to explain it. And then you better show me how that's actually going to affect something. Right. I think like, that's where I, I think, you know, capturing, you know, some of this other wearable data, catapult, connects on whatever, RPEs, great. They'll do it. But if nothing ever changes, like practice never changes based on it, I would also say, well, this screw, why am I wearing this? Like nothing, yeah. it, it's not affecting any decisions or any, anything in the future. So it, it, it's just being collected for the sake of being collected. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard you in the past talk about that you can't remove the the human element and you know technology doesn't make these 
make these things useful yep. it doesn't make them actionable um we do right human beings do can you talk yeah. a little bit about that human element in all of this yeah that's uh i stole that quote in a conversation with one of my best friends patrick ward he said you know like technology doesn't make decisions people make decisions i couldn't agree more i use it in any presentation i can to, to try and drive that home uh but it, it's true i mean i think a lot of times people take the human elements out of out of whether it's data or even just coaching in general, right? Like have a conversation with these athletes, whether they're high school athletes, college, or, you know, or making, you know, $50 million a year to, to play their sport. It doesn't matter. Like they're, they're still human beings. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people uh, miss the boat with, with, with working with athletes in general, but, but certainly if they're trying to implement um, a technology, because let's face it, especially like, let's say strength and conditioning coaches, we're asking them to do something they really don't want to do. Like very few athletes are like, can't wait to train today. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it's, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I wish it did. It doesn't. Um, so, so that in and of itself, like how can you actually get them to, and there's where the huge, like human and the psychological component to, to what we're trying to do as professionals and help these athletes like comes into play. Um, so yeah, the, the human element, I, you know, I, again, I, I, I think, um, you know, I tell a story about recovery and, and this really sh like this, this instance here changed my mind as it relates to recovery. And, you know, there's a handful of NFL guys that I've trained with for most of their careers. We're here and we're training and, and, and we had like a, you know, kind of recovery restorative day. So we were going to go in the pool. Uh, and I did learn in my time in the NBA to now ask athletes if they're comfortable in water. Can they swim? Right. I, I learned, I learned that lesson the hard way, like in, in like <laughs> right. a small pool, right? Like, so yeah. I've at least learned that lesson. So, you know, Hey, you know, Phil, can you swim? Timmy, can you swim? Great, great. Cool. Great. So we're going to do our restorative session in the water and just, you know, tread water for 15 minutes and then just like float. Right. That was like our day. One of my athletes grew up in the Bronx, you know, went to Princeton, unbelievable kid. He said he could swim. And we kind of get in there uh, in the water. My other NFL athletes, they're like, you know, lounging right there, loving it, right? He has this look of absolute terror on his face. He's got, they've all got like sort of the aqua belts. He's got like three floaties, <laughs> like every bit of flotation device possible. And, and I'm like, you know, what's, I thought you told me you could swim. And he was like, well, you asked me if I could swim. You didn't ask if I could float. And, and, like it was a little nuance, right? right. <laughs> but from, from an RPE session, if we just use that, like he rated that the hardest workout of the year. Wow. Like, and I was like, wow, like this is like, I might think something is good. Like again, and this is where I changed my mind on recovery specifically because of, because of the human element, because yeah. if like, if they don't think it's going to work, like if they hate cold water, guess what's not going to be effective. I don't care what the research tells me an ice bath. It's not. Um, and, and again, that, so tying it back to the human element, I think that that can't be, you know, um, that can't be understated in terms of the relationship you have with an athlete and what you're trying to do with that athlete. And that's where I think having that conversation and making them part of the conversation as opposed to being talked to is, is huge. Oh, Man, I, I think I, I think I picked that up from you, whether I heard you tell that story or just the fact of like the example of everybody's favorite first in the last, say, 10 years, 15 years is, oh, ice baths are a great recovery tool. And then it sort of dawns on me as you tell that story. Well, it's not if it is creating tons of anxiety for somebody <laughs> and their stress hormones are through the roof. You're actually doing the exact opposite. Exact opposite of what you're trying to do. And that's where, again, I used to be, I used to be that guy that was yeah. like, no, this is what the research says. And this is that's what, right. and it, like, again, one of my athletes has a hyperbaric chamber and like, look, I can tell you what the research says for a power athlete. Like, ah, it's not that compelling. It, it Look, as long as it's not de detrimental, like, all right, cool. But who am I to tell him? Like he gets out of it and he's like, man, I feel great. Oh, so I, it, I can say, no, you don't. Actually, you don't feel great because the research says you shouldn't feel great. Like it's just, it's ludicrous. Um, but right. but that's, that was the mentality I used to have until, you know, my athlete was like, oh, that was a 10. And I was like, huh? Like, 
it should have been a zero or a one is what, you know, and, and just really made me like reframe how I think about some of that stuff for sure. Debone a little bit in terms of what you are talking about when you say RPE for somebody that doesn't know what that means or how to apply that in a either pro sport setting or even just a recreational setting. Yeah, RP. So it's, you know, rate of perceived exertion. Um, and, and there's usually like a small S before it. So it's subjective, right? Yeah. Um, but but what you're doing with that is you're, you know, I look at, you know, Connexon, Catapult, some of these external measures as mm-hmm. like, okay, um, we're quantifying what, you know, the work was done externally, right? Like how fast did you run? How far did you run? Like those things. But the RPE is actually like, how did you respond to it? Right. And, and, and I think that that's the nuance of that. And that's really, you know, I mean, the way that I'll use it is let's say we did a, you know, a hundred minute workout and, and there's a, you know, there's, 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 I think actually RP is that is used poorly in most circumstances. Uh, and I can expand on that because like there's, there's a way to, to collect that data, right? One, there should be consistent verbiage. It can right. change basically, but, but it, the, well, however you ask it should be the same every day. Right. And I always say like, how hard would you rate today's workout? And there's a scale of, you know, essentially zero through one, uh, through 10. I use the, the Borg CR 10 scale and yep. then the athlete picks, right? So if it's, if, you know, and if, if the workout was a hundred minutes long and they rated a five, they would get a 500 training load, you know, for that day. And now I can then, you know, the interesting part with RP is that then I can marry it with the external. Got it. And then I can see like, Hey, here's what we did externally, but actually here's how they responded internally right? It's almost external and internal load because, you know, there could be days where, you know, Hey, the, the external load was really high, but they actually didn't think it was. And, and that could be for all of these other reasons. Hey, they slept great. They've been eating well, like all of these things have been, but then, then you catch them differently and maybe like an accumulated load, like, Hey, it's the same, it's the same workout, but now they rate it like significantly higher again, because of all these other factors. And you have to understand that. Um, but I think that's an easy way for even the general population or a younger athlete to understand and look at like, not only what is today, but like, what did the week look like? What did the last couple of weeks look like? And then, and then, you know, just get a little bit better at understanding that, look, I can't just go 10, 10, 10, 10, like, you know, again, to, to, to use that, like, and just think something good is going to happen. It's not right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, lo- I love how you said that it's a sort of, it's a way to, it's a check and balance from any external monitors you're using to see how that person is. And that's why the word perceived is it's their perception based on all the factors that go into the bucket for them in the last, say, 72, 48 hours or week or, or whatever it is. And it's super unsexy. It's not a big flashy piece of technology that a team can go out and say, Hey, we're doing this new thing and, and all this other stuff, but it's really, it's been shown to be very valid, very reliable. And then the one piece that people try to poke holes, well, a guy, a player could say anything, but yes, they could. But even if their typical response over time, after you've collected it, if let's say they're always saying somewhere in a six to eight range, well, then all of a sudden one day they say, it's way up or way below that, then it does set off a conversation mm-hmm. at least. And, th- and that's the way that I always used to like it is, okay, this at least tips off a conversation with the athlete, with the person behind the jersey and under the monitor. Yep, absolutely. I think a couple other things with, with you know, as it pertains to, to RPE um, is, I don't want to say I'm not a big fan of conditioning tests. Like I think there, there's merit in if I'm trying to capture and understand someone's, um, you know, their, their whatever, you know, energy system quality I'm sure. actually looking to, but, but I also use them to anchor the athlete to attend because what that, that's the other thing I see a lot of people like, nice. like struggle with at first is like, you know, I show an athlete like a scale of zero to 10, like they don't know what a 10 is. They, they, they like, there's nothing to anchor it to. So we do a maximal effort fitness test. And I say, this is a 10. Now, again, in two weeks, that might change for them, but they've got something they can anchor to where then they can move off of. I like um, that. And, 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 and that's, that's one thing I think that, that often, especially in RPE usage, like goes, goes um, you know, just no one focuses on. The other interesting part that, that I've, I've, I've done a few times now uh, using RPE is actually with the coaching staff. And 
like I change the verbiage a little bit with a coaching staff, but I say like, what is your intended rate of perceived exertion? Right. So, so mm. coach, you're planning this practice. You intend it to be a six. Great. Now we, we do, we, you know, we have practice. Now we, we get the athletes, you know, their RPE. And now oh, that, that was a three. That was it. And then you get the one that was a nine and, you know, like, oh, like, so now you can kind of have that conversation with the coach. Like, hey, coach, I understand this is what you want, but this is what happened. So, right. so where's the disconnect? And then, and then you can also start to un- get them to understand like, oh, well, it was a six. Yeah, but these these three athletes here, they rated it a nine or again, we're obviously making it up because those were your only three bigs in practice. So when you broke out and you did 45 minutes of individual work, they were working on a one to three work rest ratio. The other like 10 athletes that are guards, they were working on a one to 10. So of course it was much harder for them. Like you have to keep, and, and, and I think sometimes coaches, like they just don't think about things like that. And, and this can kind of open up that, those doors of, of, of having, you know, better conversation to lead to better planning. Were some of those conversations that you had um, with the players in Toronto key in the durability that you managed to achieve among that group where, you, you know, year after year, you were among the lowest number of total games missed in the league? I, I'd like to think so, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I would, I would like to think that it was, you know, the man, was I a good strength coach, but, but it, <laughs> there's, you know, there, there's a lot of factors. I think, I, I think it did be the conversations, but I also think it to, to, to the earlier uh, talk about the human element. Like, I think I just had really good buy-in from our players to do what I wanted them to do. So we trained pretty much every day right? Like we're not going hard every day, but we're doing something every single day at that time, which was unique in the NBA. Um, and I think that's what led to, to any sort of success we had, you know, from, for keeping place, keeping players healthy, but that stemmed from my relationship with the players and Mm. getting them to actually want to be in the room and to want to listen to me. And look, it wasn't easy every day. I'm not going to lie, but, but guys bought into what we're doing. Um, and I think that that came, with having open conversations with them. I mean, look, too, when I took the job, I was the youngest strength coach in NBA history. Right. 26 years old at the time. I was like, what is going on right now? Um, you know, and I'm fortunate, but, but that taught me a lot too. And, and I had vets that, that I listened to. You know, the, I, Aaron Williams played, you know, he's 35 years old. He's not going to, you know, I was lucky that he let me like just be in the room. Like I'm lucky he didn't like, keep me out of the weight room. You know what I mean? Um, but, but that came with like listening to them. What do they need? Right. I had my own ideas. I, and then, and not trying to come in and like, this is what we're going to do. Like these guys have been successful. Like, you know, I'm not saying everything they did was great. It, it wasn't, but, but I'm not going to come in and make wholesale changes to, to, to these athletes and, and their approach. I have to build that trust and build that, that confidence they have in me and and over time like I, th- I think we were able to do something pretty successful with that yeah td yeah. um obviously you made a similar jump from the jam to, to the lakers as as keith's talking there i'm going to guess there's a memory or two that's bubbling up to the surface for you also yeah for sure i mean i i think that that's the piece that keith talks about that is just takes time, but you also, you need time to develop the relationship with the players to get the buy-in, but you also need the awareness that that's an important thing to focus on. So I think both of those things have to go hand in hand. And it is something where similarly, I walk into a locker room of guys as a first time I had no NBA experience whatsoever. And also in my, I guess, 30, 30 to 35 year old range at that time. And basically had players that were five, eight years older than me and had, were on the cusp of retirement or heading for the hall of fame. And so it wasn't, I certainly had to kind of learn how to and and understand how to have them be the driver, like Keith said, be a better listener than an instructor in many cases. Um, I'm the first to say that there's plenty of cases where I was doing a lot more of handing guys the right weight of dumbbell than prescribing an exercise or writing a program. <laughs> and um, and so Keith, I guess that's where I'd I'd love to hear your take on 
some of the things that maybe people who haven't been in a NBA weight room or run an NBA team from a strength and conditioning coach seat would find sort of unexpected or they they wouldn't expect and in terms of things that you have to fight against or fight for or whether it's player based coach based management based of things that people would be surprised that like you said people think oh these are NBA athletes and they're getting paid all this money they just must be just lining up at the exact right time to be in the weight room that you prescribed and then how hard can that be really to get all these guys that are just frothing at the mouth to do all the right stuff all the, all, all the time yeah, man, would that be nice? Um, <laughs> it's yeah. I, I think some of the biggest things that that probably I, I, the uh, um, a, a phrase I often use when we're talking to, to people is like like if the general population only knew what right. happened behind closed doors in professional sports, like they'd be appalled. Right. Um, you know, um, and and, and it, it is because they, that's that is the perception that these they're just dialed. They're counting every gram of carbohydrate. They're, they, no, they're not. Um, right. And it is, I think what, what they probably be most surprised at is yeah, the amount of just hand holding and the amount of like, kind of the psychology that goes into what you're trying yeah. to do. And, and, and also dispelling, like, it's the same thing that you have to deal with in, in, you know, if you go down the road to 24 hour fitness and you see these people like doing stuff that you're like, why would they be doing that? And cause they picked up men's health. And they, and you fight the same thing, you know, behind closed doors, whether it's in Toronto or any of, oh, the GM saw something on ESPN, like, oh, shouldn't we like, no, man, like we shouldn't, <laughs> um, you know, and just having those conversations, like, you know, I think most people would be shocked that those are real conversations that happen almost every day um, with an athlete, with a coach. Uh, you know, again, I, I, Sam Mitchell was an interesting, you know, I got along with Sam, but was quite an interesting character. And, and I distinctly remember this was also, this is my first year too. So again, I'm trying to, to, to navigate this entire world. And we had two player, well, we had one player in particular, but who was just a, a freak. And um, one day in training camp, but, but technically he needed a lot of work, right? Yeah, Athletically, yeah. like, I mean, he could do anything you asked. He needed help on court. And you know, going through practice and he's not practicing very well. And, and Sam stops practice. And he kicks, you know, he kicks over a bike and he's yelling and he's like, you know, Keith, if I see him in the weight room with you one more time, like you're fired. I'm like, wow. Okay. That's in front of the team. Like everybody's the out there. That's in front of everyone management. You name it. Right. That's just, this is training. Camp. Wow. So like every, you remember training camps. I mean, like everybody oh. would be around. Oh. Right? So, so I'm just like, you know, like, uh, okay, so I'm fired if I do my job. Like, okay, <laughs> right. how do I deal with this? And fast forward to a week in like a preseason game. And again, this player doesn't have a good game because that's where like, the, you know, technically they need their work. Um, but he was also like, you know, getting pushed off the block and the things like that. So comes in after the game and Sam's like, Keith, if you don't, God damn it, he needs to get stronger. He like, and just scream at my boy. I second. last week, he was, <laughs> last week he was too strong. This week he's not strong enough. Like it doesn't work like that, Sam. Um, but like those type of conversations, I think a lot of people don't understand. Like it, it really is a job in managing people again, not to keep harping on that, but it, it is a super valuable point. But also I think it's also uh, pro sports is a sad to say, like, it's not a place where a game work is done day in, day out. Mm. There's a lot of, all right, plan B, plan C, like shit. Hopefully you don't have to go past that, but sometimes you do. Um, and it's, and it's managing, managing those aspects of the job that, that I found the most difficult. Um, and, and it was probably, I was fortunate with the players I had certainly in Toronto, um, that it was just a great group of guys that, that bought in and they did everything I asked it was managing the other thing, the management and, and, you know, our GM and front office staff and our coaching staff to get everybody on the same page. And I probably did a poor job of that because at the time I was young and I didn't realize how much education had to go into that, how much. Yeah. Like, like for me, I would often get frustrated at our, at our GM or at our head coach, but you know, like in my mind, I'm like, how do you not see the importance of this? Now I can look at, you know, like close to 20 years later and be like, well, why would they 
like that's not the the they don't look at the world the way I do with with the training and the the right the, the, my thing. So it, that really, I mean, I'll take more of the, the blame than than uh, than them because I just, but I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah, that's really interesting. So rewind a little bit for us. So how did the job in Toronto come about? And then, as you say at the time, you know you're this mid-20s guy that's, you know, sure, you've been around the league for a few years now, which is awesome, but suddenly it's a complete role change, it's a complete change of scope, and there's got to be a lot of unknowns. So how did you try to make it somewhat for the controllables that you could control where you weren't just drinking for a fire hose and maybe zero in on a few things where you're like, all right, I'm going to try to build the relationships, yes, but maybe there, there are just a few things I can... I can zero in on here rather than it trying to be everything all the time. Yeah. Um, again, it was also somewhat, you know, luck uh, with Toronto. I, I took the job as the assistant athletic trainer when I first got there and actually, you know, Sean Brown, who, who was coincidentally the strength coach when I first started with the Celtics, it then changed um, I think a year, maybe two into my time with the Celtics. Um, Sean was a head strength coach. And, and I had a really good relationship with him. He's, he's still a super close friend. Um, but Sean then quit right leading up to, to training camp. And wow. Sean's recommendation was that, that I take over as the strength coach. And, you know, Rob Babcock was the, the GM at the time. And Rob was like, okay, cool. Keith, you're, you're our new head strength coach. And I was like, um, okay, cool. Um, so it was... You know, in that first year, I, one, I was 100% drinking from a fire hose, but also it, timing worked out well too. Like we had a really veteran team. We were horrible. Um, you know, that was a year you know, Kobe dropped 81 on us. So I had, <laughs> right. I had a front row seat for that, um, which was amazing. Um, and we can come back to that because there's a great story on that. Um, well, we're coming but, back to that. <laughs> but But I also had so many veterans on that team that like, it was like a, you know, I at least had the self-awareness to say like, all right, I'm not going to come in here. And it, I, I say self-awareness. I'm sure some of them told me to F off because I'm sure I tried. Um, but it was like, <laughs> let me pick and choose my battles. And okay, like I'm going to let like the majority of what you're doing live, but like maybe we can take, hey, can you give me these two things? And here's why. And then you slowly had, had these guys sort of like, yeah, all right, cool. And, and, and that's how I built it. Then after that year, you know, Brian Colangelo took over pretty much halfway through as the GM and that off season, he blew up the entire team. Right. And, and we had nine, maybe even 10 new players to start that next year. Um, so, so I got to kind of start from scratch and, and really sort of revisit like, okay, what worked, what didn't work. I also, that year did something that I, I now, when I kind of talk to younger professionals in the field, I kind of get them to think about and, and do and, and, and I've started to even in the last number of years, like redo it myself, but is like put on paper, what is your philosophy, right? Like write it down, like get it out of your head, write it down. Where, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And, and, and start to craft like your own philosophy as it relates to training. Cause I think then you can be, have a little bit more confidence. You yeah. can also maybe see where there's some gaps. And I think it also, it, it, it lends itself to learning and being able to take something from anything you learn and fit it into, fit it into your, like, you know, outlook on, on the, cause a lot of times what you see, especially on the younger, uh, you know, professionals in our field is they'll take this course and then that's all they do for the next month. Like, it's just like wholesale, like, yep, I just learned this. And that's now they only see the world through that lens. And then they'll go learn something else a month later or two months later. And then now they've completely changed and they do that as opposed to like having an understanding of what they think and then being able to pull in different pieces to build, to build on. Um, but at least it gives them a filter. And, and I did that that year. I don't know. Mm. What, I don't know. I can't remember what forced me to do that, but I, it, it was probably just feeling so overwhelmed in my first year, to be honest. Um, and, and that really allowed me to maybe look at things a little bit differently and, and then have the opportunity to have a complete fresh group of, of players, some on the younger side, some in that medium, but, but have now, a. um, a confident approach in the weight room with what we're doing. 
Right. And it, and it also, when you've defined for yourself and even articulated to others around you what your philosophy is, it it starts to kind of quiet the noise and, and it just eliminates these conversations of maybe somebody from upstairs coming down. Hey, did you, I saw this article on ESPN, they're trying, they're doing this in their weight room and whatever. And that kind of thing. So those conversations, if you, if you've never sort of defined or articulated what your philosophy is, then it becomes really hard to keep just focused on the the thing at hand that you think is a priority because you've never really created objectives. You've never really created more importantly, a filter to then organize your objectives from and your decisions that you make are just sort of like, let me try some of this. Let me try some of this. Let me try some of this. Oh shoot. That didn't work. Versus now it's like, well, no, I have a filter. That's my philosophy. And then my objectives are, are born from that and go through that filter. So it's, it's, Hey, yeah, no, that's cool. What they're doing over there. Here's why we don't do that. And here's what our objectives are just so you know, and all of a sudden the conversation becomes really easy. Yep. Absolutely. And I'd actually love to, 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 to hear your thoughts on this year, Tim, because this was another approach I took this year or that, that year um, is like getting your vets or your team leaders, like having like, uh, like going to them to help yeah. you. Right. And, and, and you obviously had some, some, some pretty like big, you know, guys, <laughs> God, one obviously for sure. Um, but, but how did you maybe look at the guys like from, from a player standpoint to get, to get on your side and help you to kind of drive what you were trying to do? Yeah, I think that that was, it it was huge. I mean, (laughs) there's a dangerous um, sort of fine line that you run with that because if you aren't sort of on the same page and you assume one of these elder statesmen is going to, and you haven't had a conversation with them and and you assume they're going to fall into what you're thinking and then suddenly they don't, they kind of can also be the one that derails your whole approach if they're saying, in front of younger players, I never did that. And look at, I'm a, I'm a hall of fame guy type of thing. So it's important to articulate and and have the conversation ahead of time. But I do think that guys like, and this is the conversation I would often have is look, Steve Nash, Meta world peace, Pau Gasol, Kobe Bryant. We're not all personality wise or um, habits wise the same, but there was a common denominator is that they were always looking to find what around them could help them. And they were open to learning new stuff, even at the latter stage. So if you're brand new to this league and you're already saying, no, I did it this way when I was in college for one year, or when I was in high school, I'm all good. Well, it's hard for you to sort of stand on the, that, those pillars. If you're brand new to the league and, and a person who's five, two years away from the hall of fame is saying, no, I, I would test that out. I would try that because that's actually, uh, I'm open to that idea, that kind of thing. So I used to kind of lean a lot on the fact that there was this common denominator in between some very, very different people and players, but they all had that common denominator and sort of highlighting that for, for a younger player, yep. I think is, uh, was something that I leaned on a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would often you know go to whether it's you know CB and and having you know having him be be Chris Bosh, um, having him be like you know the leader of the team. But then but but he kind of led in a different way. He's quiet, was you know, right. loud, right? So so it would be different things. But but I mean I do simple things, which you know, Rasho was a, a vet leader at the time that we had Nesterovich and, and other guys. But but I would go to CB sometimes and be like, hey, like I'm gonna get on you during warmups today. And like, I don't mean anything by it, but I need like the younger guys to like focus and snap in. And if I'm yelling at you, right. I don't have to say no to you, but like, just, just know it's not about you. Uh, you know, some of the other vets, like they picked up on that, but, but, but I would have that conversation and just like, so that the younger guys would be like, Oh shoot. If he's yelling at like CB like that, like I better get my stuff together here. Like, let me focus on the warm up. Um, just little things like that. But, but, but that was one thing I definitely tried to do is then involve the players in, in, you know, and you're right, Tim, if, if you got to make sure that there's a fine line of just like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, acquiesce to whatever you want or yeah. like, but so having, but having that open dialogue, but say like, Hey, here's why I need you to, to back me and be on board with, with what I'm trying to do because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, fortunate most, most of the guys, you know, I worked with did. I love that. I love that. All right. Get back to the Kobe 81 story. He teased us with it earlier. Oh, um, <laughs> 
so yeah, we, again, that, that game was just fun in so many ways. And, and often, um, you forget that we were up by like 20 points at one time during that game, but it was, right. it, was it was wild. And we come, we come back in the locker room after the game. Right. And everyone just like, like, Oh my God, like what just happened? Like they're, they're, they're just like, they're loving it. Right. And this is my first year. I'm pretty competitive. Right. And <laughs> I'm like, are you guys kidding me? Like you're sitting in here and you're happy about this. Like, and I'm like, I'm going at guys. Right. And, and then some of the guys, you know, you get everyone, they deliver like a stack of box, you know, box scores, like after the game and, and right. the guys are like to, to, to some of the ball boys. They're like, Hey man, can you, can you bring this down to Kobe and have him sign it? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like he just scored 30 points on you and you're going to ask for his autograph on that. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And it, you know, and I was so fed up. Uh, um, before his passing, right. I, I happen to come across it and, and I see it a signed box score for $25,000 from that game. And I'm like, no, like I could have got like a stack of them. I was like, are you kidding? Like my pride got so in the, like, right. Like the value, but I do look back on that game and I'm like, man, like that would be so cool to have like just something wow. outside of you know, the, the memories are, are cool. Don't get me wrong, but like for sure. Know, and, I, and I'm not one on, on memorabilia by any means, yeah. but, but that was such a unique thing that like, I'm like, man, what an idiot I was to not try and, you know, get something like that box score sign. That would be super cool to have. So but then when, I saw, <laughs> when I saw there were 25 grand, I'm like, wow, well, I'm an even bigger idiot. Than <laughs> the competitor in you though, man, yeah. you, that, that's, uh, that's what it, that was what it was all about. You have a really unique now view and vantage point because you have this kind of long tail of, of different spots that you've worked in different environments with pro athlete people getting ready to become pro athlete or at Stanford, some of them going to be working professionals and not playing pro, but at a very high D1 level. And then now working for Nike and kind of the other side of it that you see, you alluded to it just a moment ago about this idea of the craziness that these athletes at different stages and ages have to go through now, certainly much different than even what Antoine Walker had to go through when you had him with the Celtics versus now an athlete that comes out of a a Duke, a Kentucky, and is suddenly thrust into the NBA. Talk a little bit about what that, this now athlete today goes through and and just how you, how you see it. Man, there is so much, thrown at, at these athletes these, these days, again, volume, right? Like I think you, you'll go back maybe 20 years or, or, or whatever, like, you know, you didn't have these athletes, these kids. I mean, I see it with my, my, my two boys, I have an 11 and an eight year old and I yeah. see it with my 11 year old. I've been you know fortunate enough to be involved in coaching, which we can talk about youth coaching and like the, the, the which has been eye opening for me in, um, but, but this like year round nature, and especially, you know, when you talk about a sport like basketball, like these kids are playing nonstop. So it, it, it's no surprise that some of these like injuries are happening as it, you know, I mean, you think about the miles put on their body by the time they get, even get to the show. Right. It, it's crazy. Um, and, and I think that often goes like people just don't, don't think about it. Then add the pressure and like the mental stuff. Like I, for all of my, like, uh, shenanigans I did as a, as a youth, like, thank God there was no sport, you know, like social media and things <laughs> right. like that. But now these athletes and these kids today have to deal with that. And then if they are a high level athlete, like the pressure, I, again, I listened to, to the interview you guys did with Larry Nance Jr. And like him talking about that, like was really interesting because yes, yeah, like you're right. Like LeBron's on the cover of, of sports illustrated, you know, as like the chosen one and like, Dude, he's 15 years old or like, look at, I mean, okay. Now I'm sure his son has grown up like very different than like, just because he's seen his dad and things like that. But I mean, you know, like Bronny jr. Like, man, like man. that's a lot of pressure on him. Like that is a lot of pressure in, 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 you know, not, not to, to focus on him, but you've got a bunch of kids like that. 
And, and, and it is, it is certainly changed because, you know, th- there was never that talk in locker rooms about, about stuff back then, like maybe starting to, um, you know, cause obviously LeBron came out when he came out. So, so that, that, that had reached that point yet of, of someone with that focus hitting the league, but, but now it's just a common occurrence, right? Um, and, and, and I can only imagine what that does to a kid's psyche, but then, but yeah, for, for me, it's more looking at like the volume. I, again, I work with a lot of NFL players and yeah, is, you know, you take these, these, especially running backs. I think this is the problem with like running back. It, yes. The game has changed, but like, if you look at a kid like that, who starting at like 10 years old, he's the best athlete there is. So what does coach do? Coach gives him the ball every single time. Then he gets to high school. Yep. Coach gives him the ball every single time. Then he gets to, to, to Alabama and Saban gives him the ball every single time. He makes the NFL. Like he's like, dude, like I am just beat up. Right. And, and, you know, and again, same thing in NBA, like those, those, those kids get there and they've just played AAU nonstop and played, you know, 10 games in a weekend countless, you know, over and over and over again. Um, I, that's the stuff that in youth sports right now is I, I wish something could be done about it. I have no idea what could be. Um, again, that's, but, but I, I think just general awareness and, you know, maybe some of the Scandinavian approaches to things and, and, mm. and you know, I had an interesting talk with somebody, uh, yesterday actually about, you know, Norway's and, and they're just, just even their like take on things of like, Hey, we're going to get kids involved in sports, but we're trying to make better citizens, not better athletes. Like wow. the best, the best ones, they're going to rise to the top. Like that's, of course they are, but, but, but like their, their whole mantra with, with, you know, sort of kids being active is, is to create and foster better Norwegian citizens, not just like elite gold medalists and things like that. So just a, just a very different take and having, yeah. you know, having sat on the youth side coaching and right. hear, like dealing with like parents and the board of, of just, you know, um, in my mind, doing like some solid approaches to, to youth sport development or youth athletic development. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. That's, that's so fascinating. Do you think that part of it is, um, there's a book out called The Game is Hard Enough, I think, which is a recent okay. book on youth sports, which is really good. And just, you know, letting adult, reminding adults, particularly those sports parents, that like, hey, maybe you've forgotten. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's hard to, to do these things and juggle everything else as well that kids are going through. So you don't become part of the problem or the biggest stressor on them. Um, could you comment on that just maybe through the lens of, parenting and coaching your own kids and what you've seen um, even outside of your role at Nike. Yeah. And again, you know, my role at Nike is, is pretty different and, and we can touch upon that. Cause it, you know, I, I have, you know, earlier on in my time there, like I was involved a little bit of like sort of the gen pop, like outward facing stuff. And, and mm. in the last probably eight years, I, I have really nothing to do with it. Um, it. It is very much, you know, aimed at Nike's contracted athletes, teams and organizations in sort of a variety of ways. But but yeah, being involved in new sports and just having like the background um, of, of working in pro sports and they, and, and even like the hearing the vantage point or the, per, the, the, the um, perspective from these elite athletes and, and what they think it's like, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, uh, a good friend, Brandon McDaniel with the Dodgers, I'm, I'm sure, you know, B, uh, B Mac. and, and, you know, be, we were talking about stuff and, and he said, you know, inevitably when he speaks at an event, like they're like, Hey, you know, what does Kershaw do from a training program? And, and B's like, he had to kind of reframe it to be like, that's a wrong question. Cause, cause he's a Cy Young. Like you should ask, what was he doing when he was 12? Mm. Not what, not what is he doing now? Like, I know everyone thinks like, Oh wow. My 12 year old should be doing what Clayton Kershaw. No, he shouldn't at all. But maybe ask what Clayton was doing at 12 years old, right? And, and reframing it. And I thought that was a really interesting way that, that he said that. That's but, great. But, you know, I mean, I think even just the, the mindset that parents now have of, you know, what, you know, some of it is just living, you know, through their kids. But, but also, like, the pressure on them as parents, like, oh, my kid's got to be good at this so we can get a college scholarship or they can get, you know, so she can go to, you know, Yale and play lacrosse, like, it, it, it warps like the, the, the goal of just having fun. Um, right. And, and, you know, I coached my son's um, tackle football team last year. I was a head coach of, of 11 year. He was 10 at the time. Um, so it was fifth and sixth graders. First time he'd ever played tackle football. I've coached him soccer, baseball, things like that. But, but this is the first time like 
Okay. We're talking about tackle football now in America. Parents get pretty fired up. <laughs> and, but at the same time, I kind of was overly optimistic that like, oh, well, clearly they realized like most of the kids have never played before and they're 10, 11 years old. Like, no, they didn't. Um, and, and I did some simple things that I knew would rock the boat. Um, but I didn't realize the, the, the blowback that I would get, like in a, in a simple thing, like I started 22 kids. Like, I, I mean, I think the wow. three of us, like you're, you're, you're silent right now. Cause you're like, yeah. So, but that for most of the parents, they, they were pissed. That was killing them. That was killing them. And, <laughs> and I'm like, no, like, like, think about what you're saying. And I get calls from the board, my youth football board, like, wow, like, why are you doing that? And that's not the way we typically do things. I'm like, well, hold on a second. You're saying like, like these kids are out there doing everything. Like they're all practicing. Like, why do you not want, you know, Bobby to, even if Bobby's not one of the best players, that's fine. Like they're 10, who cares? Like we're having fun. We're getting him, like teaching him the game. Why can't he tell his parents and his grandparents or whoever, like, hey, I'm starting tomorrow? Like, that's a big deal. Right. Just even for nothing more than that, but also to give these kids these confidence and want them to, to continue to play sport. Because, again, that's, that is what the research shows us is kids are, are quitting sports in, in alarming numbers because of not only parents, but, but these external factors, the coaches and things like that. And, you know, uh, I'm damned if it was going to happen on my watch, but, but we did a lot of things that I was really surprised. I maybe kind of knew it that I'd, I'd get a little bit of pushback. I just wasn't, I wasn't ready for the amount. I really wasn't. And, and it caught me off guard wow. um, that you had parents complaining about certain things that were trying to play kids in different positions to just get them exposed to different movements and different, because they're learning. They're not, you know, to have someone focused on one position at 10 years old is, is, is ludicrous to me. Um, but that's what parents want. Like, I mean, I had one parent tell me my, he's an 11 year old, mind you. And his parent is, his his one of his parents said, well, like in my son's career, he's always been a running back. And <laughs> huh? Like he's 11, like we career, like what are we talking about? <laughs> uh, like just, just really, you know, um, you know, just, just a different mindset. Uh, it's, it, it's like when my, my three-year-old tells me when she was little, she, she used to drink a lot more orange juice. Yeah. Yeah. When I was little, like, really? <laughs> <laughs> you mean, you know, so it, it, it uh, you know, youth sports, I think is, is definitely something that I, I, again, I, I wish that in this this country we could change and have a different outlook. I, you know, that's, that, that is the, you know, sort of pie in the sky view, because I think it is hurting our, even, even the athletes who do make it to that top level, I think they probably better served if they didn't have whether the pressure or they were able to kind of explore different sports as they were going older and not, you know, being pigeonholed um, so early. I mean, again, I think, these athletes, they're going to rise to the top regardless. It's just, I think you, you, you give them more tools to be even more successful at the high end once they get there, if you allow them to. So, right. So good. So good. Keith, this has been incredible. Um, we have one famous last question and this is the basketball strong podcast. And so the question is, what does it mean to you to be basketball strong. And I want you to answer however that sort of comes off of your heart and, and your gut, not necessarily the technical side of that, but um, what does that term mean to you? I, I would say it means, um, I'll, I'll say it like talking about an athlete. Right? Yeah, it's great. easier for me to talk about. Like, what does this athlete need right now? Right. Like I, I think sometimes we kind of have these, these like preconceived notions of like, oh, this is what, like, no, like what does this athlete need right now to, to perform at their optimal level? And, and then now I start to think about how I actually approach that. But as opposed to come in with like, no, this is how I'm going to make you better. But like, well, first thing I need to understand, like, you know, how can you get, what, what are the, the areas of opportunity for you as an athlete? What are your limiting factors, things like that? And, and let's address that. So basketball strong to me is like, I almost look at like, like, how do I optimize? I, I almost like flip that in my head and say like, you know, how do I optimize for this athlete? And, and I think having that sort of understanding of the athlete first, before I come in with, with my ideas, like, like will help me get there faster. 
So good. So good. Let listeners know where they can follow what you're up to, where they can kind of follow along with what you're doing. I, I do have Instagram, Keith.Demilio, but, but I will say right now, I use it more to like look at my athletes rather than to actually, <laughs> but I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get better. Um, a baby. But, but yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm always up for, for, for chatting with it, with anyone. So again, an email, you know, firing off an email to me, which, which again, you guys can put out is, is good. I, I've, I've definitely enjoyed conversations just to hear other people's vantage points too, right. Yeah. And, and, and challenge my own thinking. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Keith. Been no, incredible. Awesome, Thank you, Keith. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, and we hope you did, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And so you never miss a weekly episode, be sure to subscribe and follow. You can find previous episodes on our show website. That's www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. For more basketball performance resources and nagging injury solutions, follow me on Instagram at TD Athletes Edge and follow Phil at Phil White Books. Until next week's episode, stay basketball strong.